Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 77. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. It is Thursday, March 12th, 2020. Um, we've reached a, a very strange place, I think, just based on recent news events that we're seeing, of course, as it pertains to the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, uh, the impact that's clearly going to have on everybody's lives. And frankly, I, I think it's just something we're going to talk about for a while on this show, and we'll see where things go. Uh, because, you know, there's really been nothing in our lifetimes uh, that has reached this level in America that I can recall. And I, I think of like H1N1 and some of the other outbreaks that have happened in our lifetime. I don't recall the level of response from professional sports and other walks of life getting to this point when those outbreaks occurred. No. And, you know, over the next week or so, you know, I've got a friend uh, who's a doctor in Seattle and he's in quarantine and his mother's in the hospital. And I, I think over the next week or so, everyone's going to have a story like that. Um, if not closer. <clears throat> so it's uh it's a difficult time, and I think what's even weirder and more difficult about this, at least in our space, and I hate to be to navel gaze, but you know we are who we are, is that a lot of times when there's something difficult going on um, internationally or nationally, we turn to the sports to to not think about it or to to unify to move on. There's something about the way sports um, seem to have been played forever, you know, and that, and that we keep the records of them and we, we just kind of assume they will always be there, you know? And, and like, I'm thinking of like nine 11 and, and sort of, you know, different shootings and, and different things that have happened in the past where we have a, a grand moment of silence and then, you know, eventually play ball. And so I thought that, you know, maybe we'd be playing in empty stadiums because we're, we're going to be home and we're going to need that distraction. We're going to need that unification. We're going to need that feeling again. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is, I, I made a decision earlier this week to, to not go to Arizona. And it was... It was. I just made a decision like two days ago, but it seems like it seems like a year ago. Um, and it, the decision came down to the fact it wasn't like I had a cold, right? And I was like, I think this is a cold. I, you know, there's too much snot. It's too much of my nose. I don't think I have the virus. But is there a one percent chance that this is the virus? Sure. Um. You know, does it doesn't make sense for me to try to elbow my way to the front of the line and get a test and get the test results so I can go to Arizona? No. Does it make sense that if I have a 1% chance of having this, that I should go travel and touch things and shake people's hands and cough in front of people? Like, I, I'm coughing still. So I was like, this is, this is almost a no-brainer. And it's not about me. I will survive, most likely. It's about the 1% chance that I go and spread this and someone else who has a compromised immune system or an older person dies. That would be, that would, that would just break me. I would, I would feel so terrible. And playing in empty stadiums, I think, 
it does give us that distraction and we're going to need distractions. And so we're going to do our best to, 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 to work towards a season. We don't know when it'll start, you know, but playing in empty stadiums still has that risk. You're still flying players around from place to place. And those players by this point are likely to, to have the virus, some of them. And if you're flying them around from city to city, you're spreading it, you're, you're adding stress to the, to the overall healthcare system. Uh, you're generally, you're generally, you're just spreading it. You're making it worse. So, uh, my assumption is that, um, you know, there's going to be an announcement today. We haven't heard it yet, but I'm just, I'm assuming they're going to bang the rest of, um, spring training, um, and maybe leave opening day up in the air. Um, because there's some sense that maybe this will slow down and maybe the uh, warmer weather uh, will will combat this somehow. Yeah, I mean, we're exactly two weeks to the day from opening day, and I think there's almost no chance of mm-hmm. there being games played that day. And it's for the greater good. Like, there's there's no doubt in my mind about that. I was having the exact same thoughts you were uh, about potentially going to New York for Tell Wars. I mean... I was supposed to be on a plane right now going there. And I think it was Tuesday afternoon. These, these days have been some of the longest days I can Jeez. remember. It's only been two days and it feels like it's been a month. But the, the thought I had was very similar to yours. I thought about my father-in-law who has an autoimmune disorder. Um, and I thought, you know, I will probably be okay. I, I can rationalize statistics and I will wash my hands a lot. And I'm very careful but I could easily be a carrier and you go to a place that's very densely populated where you're in close proximity to your friends, strangers. There was no no way in my mind that I could justify taking that risk, even if that risk mathematically is still relatively small. And I think part of our, our collective duty in a time like this is to err on the side of extreme caution it for the benefit of everyone you know we we all want to have normalcy we want to have baseball and fantasy baseball and go to movies and go to plays and do things with our friends and go to concerts and yes it is frustrating and disappointing when those things aren't there for us because they are escapes from the other scary things in our day-to-day lives i mean people have difficult things happening all the time i fully respect that and when hopefully I've wondered for a long time if if the way that I can help provide some value to society is just to give people something that makes them happy, right? If, if this show or the articles I write, uh, if the things I do bring people some joy and divert their minds from otherwise difficult situations, then that's worth something. It's maybe not the most important thing in the world, but it's at least worth something. Uh, so it's, it's, it's difficult because yeah, this is, this is what we use to escape and it's probably not going to be there for us for a little while, but if we do the right things, I think there's a a very good chance that it comes back sooner rather than later. It it might be a month. Like I, I I just kind of seeing the pattern of what the NBA has done, what the NHL has done, uh, what major league soccer, I think just did this morning. I would be surprised if we saw April baseball this year. Like I think it would be prudent for the league to shut it all down and reevaluate things in a few weeks, see how things are, are trending and try to make a decision about the rest of the season at that time. Like that, that kind of seems like where we're headed at this point. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a it's a weird thing, too, with fantasy. It's so, like, we're in draft season, you know? And we're all drafting with these assumptions in mind. I have two drafts left next week. I assume we'll do them, but it's like with the show, it's like, like, do we, do we analyze based on this? Like, does, is like James Paxton suddenly a better play in drafts? You know, it's a, it's a, it's such a weird space because you don't, you don't want to go there. Yeah, it feels strange talking about it in that light where it's like, well, the season's going to be shorter because of this deadly virus. So the guys who had innings restrictions are now more valuable. Like that's a really like that's the type of analysis we'd be doing in that case. That doesn't feel right. Um, But at the same time, I I, I think to divert our minds, we're going to be home. Yeah, (laughs) we're going to be home. We're going to be home. I've been I've been trying to rack my brain. Um, You were part of a. Really cool exercise that uh, Pierre Bouquet of ESPN put together. It was historical rotisserie baseball. And you talked about it, I think, well, actually, I don't think you were allowed to talk about it on the show. So Yeah, like, we, you, we scrubbed, we scrubbed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I cut that little mention out of the show a couple weeks ago. Um, so two weeks ago when we were in Florida, uh, he shared the results and that kind of exercise, which for those, I guess no one knows what I'm talking about. I should explain it a little bit. Well, you should explain it because you actually did it. Like I was thinking something like that could actually be a way we can still just divert our minds a little bit. Like we still want to pay attention to news. We still want to know what's going on in the world around us, but we're going to need pockets of, of downtime to kind of be ourselves. And and something like this could help. Yeah, it's, it was, it was a fun experience, even though I ended up uh, second to last. And after the twist, dead last. <laughs> um, <laughs> the The idea was to just look through, um, like historically, look through uh, different baseball seasons and basically pick, make a rotisserie lineup, make a fantasy lineup based on uh, picking players, picking player seasons uh, from 1980 to uh, 2010, and the rules that made it interesting were that you could only have um, one player from one season. You can only use a play. You can only use a player once. You can only use a season once, and you can only use a team once. And you had to have an even spread through the decades. So, uh, I think it turned out to be like you had to have at least five players from every decade. And. Um, that was fun. It was fun. Um, it's a draft that you can have. It uh, it will probably teach you something about. I, I I don't I don't want to talk too much about the results because maybe you can go do it. You know, it's not it's not too hard. Uh, someone has to kind of tabulate at the end. Uh, but you basically uh, it becomes a puzzle. It's not quite like how we do fantasy um, where you're drafting for the future. You already know the results. It becomes more about a puzzle of how and, and the one of the hard parts without giving too much away one of the hard parts is you don't know the targets you don't know what's enough homers or what's enough stolen bases um and so you have to kind of make these decisions oh you know there's these years 1997 1987 um there are some years that for some reason created amazing pitcher and hitter seasons 
And so you have to decide, do I take Pedro from that year or do I take Piazza from that year? And, and so you have to build this lineup. Uh, I recommend doing two catchers. It forces a little scarcity on the, on the exercise um, and brought something interesting to the table. Um, and then you just tabulate it up and you, and you make a standings. Uh, and I believe you believe me that this could take a couple weeks to, to do. <laughs> I wanted to bring it up because I thought, Hey, we all love playing. We can't play right now. We want to do something that we enjoy. This was, I, I just dropped in on the presentation about it. And after you explained it to me, I was pretty excited about it anyway. And I was more excited about it after kind of seeing uh, some things, how it played out. And I think the other rule, if I remember from uh, the presentation correctly, you are not supposed to use algorithms, correct? Like you're not supposed to just take a big database and parse through it and and basically have a computer actually solve the problem. This is like you working through leaderboards on fan graphs and using mm-hmm. the play index on baseball reference. And, I will have to and say that some, some people had a bit of an unnatural advantage. I only had uh, historical values to 2010 or so because we did that... Um, that fancy players of the decade yeah uh, podcast and uh, i think ron had i think ron had them all the way back to 1980 yeah and he was making he was making those going back to when he started doing this forecaster at least and yeah maybe even before yeah so um but i would say ron chandler didn't win um and uh the one person who didn't win that got closest to discovering um, how he could win um, made a bunch of different lineups and looked looked at how each one did against each other. Yeah, that was that was a really good tactic to to yeah. not say I'm just going to build one team. I'm going to build five or ten teams and see if I do this, if I do that. You know what what kinds of different totals am I going to get? Yeah, it's not a bad idea for, uh, for for how to get through this. Um, I hope uh, I hope people didn't disseminate exactly how the winners won. Uh, there's a couple different uh, strategies you can take going into it, um, and uh, uh, I well, I obviously took the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, the twist at the end was um, now now that you and you can actually elongate the game. This is the twist that uh, Pierre uh, gave at the end was. Uh, now that you know what the board looks like, can the last place team build a team that beats the first place team? And then once that once it's beaten, the next person goes. The next person at the bottom tries to go to the top. It's sort of like yeah. uh, we used to do training runs like that when I played soccer, where the people in the back would sprint to the front. The whole team would basically be going at like a jogging pace, and then you know, there's if you do varsity JV, forty people in line. Um, so the two people in the back, you'd run in pairs. They'd peel off and sprint to the front, Whoa. and the people in the back would sprint to the front. You could do that for a while. You could, you could just go around the field in circles if uh, <laughs> if fitness was a problem. But uh, same same principle where you know once you, once you're in last, you go again <laughs> and you try to beat. You, but it takes a while it, 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 to to take to sit there and, and break it down. Is going to take it's going to take days, maybe even a couple of weeks in some cases to pass the current leader. So I, I just think that's a really cool exercise that could go on forever. And having, having gone through it myself, um, you know, if you, if you have questions, we have the, uh, the email inbox, the, uh, what's the email again? Rates and barrels at the athletic.com. If we, if you email us there, we can, we can, uh, provide some guidance 
on on how to uh, if there are any rules that I missed, um, any questions you have on it. Uh, if anybody wants, if anyone listener wants to start doing this, wants to start doing a league, uh, but they don't have enough people, um, we can maybe facilitate, um, you know, getting together leagues on this. I don't know. Seems like, uh, and we could report uh, some results from different leagues that are doing it, um, and and talk about it a little bit. Um, so if you like, if if that's interesting, we should do it. Otherwise, I think. Um, we have to prepare ourselves for the most awkward segue in the history of fantasy baseball podcasting. Yeah, I, I wasn't looking forward to this because I, I know at the end of the last episode, we said we had more outfielders to talk about. So <laughs> <laughs> we are going to deliver on that promise. And, um, you know, going from talking about a deadly virus and how to spend your potential like weeks in basically like a lockdown scenario and engaging your mind, um, you know, transitioning from that to, Hey, let's talk about outfielders who are not being drafted inside the top 200. Um, there's no easy way to say that. Like, <laughs> there just, there just isn't. So, um, you know, at least online things are not being canceled, you know, and, and actually, you know, I think this should be much worse like 50 years ago. Oh, even, tw- even 20 years ago, like the, the internet in the early 2000s wasn't not much going on it wasn't prepared for everybody working from home streaming or streaming and watching and doing i mean i i've i've been thinking about that i mean uh, for for people who have uh, like church services or something they go to you can do that online now for college students you can get your lectures online like it's a great thing to have at our disposal especially at a time like this when you know, staying away from from gatherings is essential to making things get back to normal, right? Like having that technology is, is a very fortunate thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we get to stream watch, we get to draft, you know, the drafts will be weird and maybe the high stakes drafts. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those, you know, right now they're going online only, but because of the potential of sort of gaming the league based on, either knowing more about what will happen with the season possibly than other players in the league or because we don't know when the season will start. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point NFBC halted drafts until there was more clarity about when the season would start. Right. And I think, I think what could happen in a lot of scenarios too, if you're thinking about your home leagues or leagues you're a part of, you could postpone the draft until, you know, one week before the season begins. I, I know you're relying on the schedules of 10, 12, 15 people in a very uncertain time. But I think we're going to see some of that happening too. And, and yet another doodle, another doodle poll. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's actually become one of the best ways to find a common time for that, by the way. I don't know how many people know about that at this point, but for the leagues I'm in that have used that, we come to a consensus date probably within like three days, usually. And the email threads of, yester decade when oh my god it would be like i can't make this day and it was like reply uh, all after reply all like those yeah, that was just rough those are brutal uh those are fortunately you know no longer a part of of the leagues that, that i run but as promised let's talk about outfielders i was gonna do like old-timey interlude music but that didn't even that doesn't feel appropriate either <laughs> um i think we that's closed. usually what happens when something really 
bizarre is happening behind the scenes like they're fighting over the projector <laughs> the, the technical difficulties uh, yeah exactly <laughs> pinstripe candy stripe curtain and the old timey <laughs> piano music play me off johnny the outfielders out to the top 200 the late outfielders and not necessarily sleepers but the types of players that round out your roster um, i think i mentioned this on tuesday's episode this group of players generally has something to offer in just about every category there's even a few sources of potential cheap batting average sprinkled in to this group. Usually it comes with injury risk or uncertain playing time. But if you're chasing just about any category, you've got a shot at finding it in this range. I think we closed things out on the last show talking about Justin Upton as a really nice value option at his price. Let's pick it up with Avisail Garcia, who I think is probably one of our favorite players on this podcast. You've been... Uh, kind of banging the drum for him as a uh, undervalued free agent prior to his decision to sign with the Brewers. Uh, seeing him land in a more hitter-friendly environment has made me a lot more interested in, in what he could do this year. And I think the thing I keep coming back to is that StatCast page. It's just way better than I would have ever expected at the beginning of his career because in part because of the nickname being Baby Miggy, I think there was always this uh, this air of disappointment in Garcia, which wasn't really his fault. It was kind of the fault of whoever gave him that nickname. Yeah, you know, it might be surprising to people, but he's top 50 in barrel rate. You know, he's got the same barrel rate as Edwin Encarnacion, you know, and J.D. Martinez. So, you know, we've been, uh, like, we and other people have yelled at him for not lifting the ball better, but in the last two years, he's he's very you know, increase the bail rate. And he's always been a guy who hits the ball hard, runs real fast, has a rocket for an arm. I mean, he's very athletic and yeah, he doesn't run the best routes and yeah, he doesn't have the best plate discipline and yeah, he doesn't lift the ball as much as he could, but you know, just a raw athlete like this is still, still pretty valuable. And I think, I don't know that he'll steal much more than 10 bases, but you know, there's a possibility he gets more than 530 PA, or maybe he maybe he only does 500 plate appearances again. Um, Avisel Garcia, but you know, he, he might he might still be able to repeat uh, a good batting average, 20 homers, 10 stolen bases. And maybe in weekly leagues, it's a little bit lesser of a of a pickup, but in daily leagues, uh, a great player to have on your team. Yeah, absolutely. I think the playing time does come in a bit higher than people expect. I think with Ryan Braun, he's going to be managed very carefully. Uh, we saw Lorenzo Cain played through a lot of injuries last year. Garcia occasionally played center with the Rays, so he's an option there, even though it's a pretty big downgrade defensively from Kane to just about anybody. Um, so they, they do have a few pads for that to to really kind of be a, a regular role or almost regular role for Avisail Garcia. Well, you'd figure that like anytime there's a DH, I would actually, you know, Fangraphs has Gamble at the top of that, but I think any times there's a DH, I would figure that Smoke or Braun would DH. Yeah, I think Braun's kind of like the the default DH. Um, maybe, right? maybe like if Yelich is at that point where he hasn't had a day off in a while, and, and interleague play falls in the schedule that way, he'd get a chance to do it for a day because they they try to monitor him carefully with that back injury that kind of pops up from time to time as well. Right. So, so I mean, I just I just feel like there's uh, there's I don't know if it's 600, but like 5, 550 seems like very doable. Let's talk about Brian Anderson for a moment. He's become the people's sleeper. Like in, in a lot of the, you know, the my guys and, and sleeper pieces I've seen on The Athletic, Brian Anderson's name comes up a lot more than I would have expected. 
I think he's a nice player. I just I don't know I don't know if there's anything more there than what we saw last year, short of maxing out playing time. Because last season, Brian Anderson had 520 plate appearances, hit 20 homers, hit 261 with 342 OBP. The underlying numbers, XBA, X-Slug, generally support what he did. Makes decent contact, 89.9 average exit velocity, 8.9% barrel rate. Is there another level here, or is this sort of a what you see is what you get, and we're buying at this price because we think you know maximum plate appearances are a possibility because he's an everyday fixture in the Marlins lineup? Hmm. You said 8.9% barrel rate? Yeah, that's what they have on the... Oh, I see. Uh, you're quoting uh, barrels per batted ball event. Yeah, that's what they put on the on the page, the the player page at Savant. Oh, it's that's they use barrels per batted ball event there. Yeah. Oh, I see. The default sort on the leaderboards is barrels per PA. I like I like the PA one better actually though. It accounts a little bit for plate discipline and strikeout rate, you know. Yeah. I think it is a little bit better because you could have a guy who murders the ball. Um, you know, but doesn't ever make contact. And, you know, for fancy purposes, we care more about the whole package, I think. It's um, weird, though. It's the same. Like a major league team, it could be like, oh, we can work on the plate discipline. We can improve the strikeout rate. We just need someone who can hit the ball hard or something like that. So uh, anyway, Anderson to me is, I, d- I doubt that there is much upside left. I would say that what does remain between him and his ceiling is the fact that he's just turning 26 or he's, he's in his 26th year. So he's in his, whatever his peak year, the Marlins have, have moved the fences in. Um, and he's just such a steady producer that, you know, you could easily see him having a year where he has the 10% walk rate, the 20% strikeout rate, the two, maybe like a 220 ISO and steal five bags. That would probably produce like a 275 average, 25 homers and five bags uh, it's it's um it's the kind of thing where like <clears throat> if you looked at the auction calculator values like across the line it wouldn't be um a big positive in fact um he's a negative in each category um but that's a negative from average so he's slightly below average or average at everything and you, you add that all up you you get value you know what I mean? He doesn't hurt you anywhere. And that's a nice player to get when you're talking about double-digit rounds. I mean, you're getting him probably in the round 12 to 15 range, depending on the number of teams in your league, like with ease. He, he's not getting pushed up that much, even though people seem to like him. It's interesting to me, too, looking at his barrel rate per plate appearance, he's at 6%. Nolan Arenado is at 6%. Chris Bryant's at 5.8. Francisco Lindor's at 5.8. I mean, I don't think you'd love to see that number be a lot higher, but I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad barrel rate. I think it's just kind of slightly yeah, like above average. Four and a half is about average. Yeah. So it's 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 uh, average-ish for like a, a better player, you know. Um, one other thing, what I'd say is um, that's interesting also about his profile is he speaks a little bit to the value of keeping your team well-rounded as long as possible. Because if you come to the end of your draft and your team is well-rounded, you just need more plate appearances, just need more someone who won't hurt you, then you can pick Brian Anderson. If you come to the draft with real needs, you're going to reach lower than him. So his value right now by ATC is $5, right? 
So if you have an unbalanced team, you're going to reach down for Scott Kingery because you need steals, right? His Scott Kingery's value is is two dollars and eighty cents or three dollars. So you put left two dollars on the table because your team context needed the steals, which is it's fine. You can still build a well-rounded team in the end. But if you kept your team well-rounded long enough, there are these vanilla guys like an Adam Eaton or Brian Anderson um, uh, or Brian Reynolds. Uh, you know, guys that like don't give you a lot in a lot of places but might have more overall value than going down and being like, oh, my batting average sucks. I'm going to take Luis Arias. That's great. He's $2. So... If you chose Luis Arias instead of Brian Reynolds, you left $7 on the table. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Reynolds, as you said, he's just kind of steady across the board, too. Like, I think Reynolds and Anderson are very kind of similar-ish players. Like, you, you know, they don't... Neither one of them is going to be your star. And better the as you get better, the further they get from the middle of the lineup, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, if you had a team full of Andersons and Reynolds, I feel like you'd have a pretty good offensive team, actually. Yeah, I think they're pretty likely to hit their projection. They're probably not that, that likely to exceed it, but they're they're young enough where they're likely to just do the what mean expectation, and that's yeah. yeah, that's that's what makes them pretty appealing. Uh, let's talk about a couple other players in this range. Mark Canna. I don't know what to do with Mark Canna. Uh, I'm not going to make a pun and say can he do it again because <laughs> I'm, I'm not the pun cheeseburgers. guy. <laughs> I mean, I assume playing time's not a concern to begin the season. What he did last year was just a, at a level that I didn't think he was capable of. I don't think anybody necessarily thought he was capable of putting together a, an OPS over 900 in nearly 500 plate appearances. Is that real? Is there any reason to believe that this is a new baseline? Or are we going to look back at 2019 and say, yeah, that was a age 30 career season. There's really nowhere to go but down. I think what stands out to me is the play discipline. You know, he always had a fairly good pay, play, uh, barrel rate. He always had a, a good exit velocity. He's always lifted the ball. You know, he's always he showed these skills when it comes to power. But there was a real step forward with the walk rate last year and supported by the swing uh, discipline. And then having talked to him about this a lot, he just basically said that the the playing every day gave him the opportunity to really zone in on what he wanted to hit. This is something that happens with, when you get older is you take f- more pitches and you reach at fewer pitches. You get worse at hitting pitches because <laughs> your athleticism goes down, <laughs> but you get better at swinging at the right pitches. So his swing rate last year was 40%. Uh, his career swing rate was 45%. When, you know, in 2016, 2017, he was swinging at half the pitches he saw. So he's really cut that down. He really cut his reach rate down. Mark Canna did. So what you're what you're seeing is, I think, the evolution of plate discipline to match the plate skills in terms of power. Uh, I don't know how that intermeshes though when it comes to like how long he can do it. I think of guys like Ryan Ludwig and. It's a great pull, Ryan Ludwig. Remember, and I remember there, there's like there's a discussion about late bloomers like this, and my general feeling on late bloomers is it's going to go away quickly too, and my my general premise is that 
they had to have their peak season to be relevant. You know what I'm saying? And I don't, I don't mean to be rude to anybody. I like Mark a lot. But I'm basically saying, like, it took his peak season in order to be an everyday player. Right. His, his normal baseline was that of a part-time player. And right. it took and, a, a lifetime's worth of adjustments, a, career, right. a career's so, worth to get to this point. So if the athleticism is beginning to wane, and it has to be because he's 31, if the athleticism is going to begin to wane, then he's going to... He's he's gonna have less time at the top, and 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 he's gonna be be here uh, for less time. Now I've had people disagree with me on this theory. Um, I'm just not sure that I can really uh, give you the opposite side of the argument. I mean, Ryan Ludwig had that breakthrough. He was 29 with the Cardinals in 2008. Hit 37 homers, drove in 113 runs, hit 299. His career average was 260. So he significantly exceeded expectations got on base at a 375 clip career 330 best plate discipline of his life i mean similar stuff where he'd shown power but people thought he was a right a righty only platoon guy played every day and showed them he could hit lefty uh, he could hit uh righties as well right and the following season in about 70 fewer plate appearances hit 15 fewer home runs wasn't a bad player but wasn't close to four more good seasons but that's it. Four more good seasons. So maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe Kanha can have four more good seasons, but uh, also doubt he will have one as necessarily as good as the one he just had. Let's talk about a couple of the options in Cincinnati. Uh, Nick Senzel and, and Shogo Akiyama. Senzel's going around pick 227 since the start of March. Akiyama going around pick 261. I heard Trent Rosecrans on one of the pods. It was the Fantasy Baseball Podcast, the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, doing a division preview. And his take is that Nick Castellanos will play every day and everybody else in the outfield mix will have to platoon or mix and match in some capacity. So as you think about what that might look like, do you trust either one of Senzel or Akiyama at their respective prices? And I know you've compared Akiyama from a skills and, and production expectation standpoint to Adam Eaton, you know, he's about 55 picks cheaper than where Eaton is right now, but Eaton doesn't really have any questions about playing time, whereas Akiyama does. So how do you, how do you break down these two guys? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that's so awesome about Eaton is that he drops and drafts cause he's so vanilla. He's boring. He doesn't stand out in any category. doesn't give you enough steals to be like, Oh, I need late steals. You know, it's, it's just a few steals, a few homers, Kind of the kind of guy like Brian Anderson that'll be available to you if you have a well-rounded team. I feel like, um, but also when when he's healthy, he'll play. Uh, whereas, <clears throat> yeah, you're right. This this red situation is a bit of a mess, and I wish they would just say, "Oh, Senzel will play on the infield too," because then I could give I could finally find Senzel like 500 plate appearances because Jesse Winker is going to need a full time platoon mate. And since Senzel plays uh, le- uh, hits righty and Winker hits lefty, that's that's good. But that gives Senzel what two hundred plate appearances. Now he can't platoon with Akiyama and Winker because right. they're on the same team. Like <laughs> it just didn't work that way. Uh, but let's let's just say between the two of those, let's push that to like three hundred plate appearances. Now Cassianos, they're going to play him as much as possible. You get a little bit of backup there, three fifty. Can you push Senzel past 350? DH, 400. It's still not that much. 
Yeah, and I love Senzel, man. So I don't... Yeah, the depth charts are putting him at 470. I think that's... I don't think you can push it much harder than that. I mean, I, I just tried some back of the envelope and got him to 400. And the nice thing about that is that in 400 at-bats, if you're in a daily league, you can get an Adam Eaton player. You can get a 15-15 guy with decent batting average and good OBP. So, uh, and then I guess the last 70 or so plate appearances is an injury, other people's injury. But you would want to actually, I think, take some of his injury risk off of that 470, right? You, you'd have to. <laughs> because he's been injured a lot. So, I don't know. I would. I, I think I would revise it down to whatever you can get in 400 plate appearances and probably get, make him like a 10-10 guy, which makes him very borderline in most leagues. But if you're in a daily league, um, you know, 260-10-10 kind of plug-and-play guy, uh, I could see it. I I keep looking at the other players in between these two guys. Shinsu Chu, I think, got a mention on Tuesday's show. Power should come down a little bit because of the park changes, but playing time, not really much of a concern there. Uh, Nomar Mazzara should also play a lot more than both Senzel and Akiyama if everybody's healthy in the Cincinnati outfield. The other solution in Cincinnati is Someone other than Freddie Galvis playing shortstop, but I don't know who that would be. We haven't mentioned my favorite guy in this group. Oh, you were you were kind of getting to uh, Nomar Mazzara, who I like. But the one thing about Nomar Mazzara that's interesting to me is I don't know why I like him. You know, I know that like Mike Petriello does not you know respect him that much greatly, and I understand a lot of it is like the defensive shortcomings, and like yes, his. He's been pretty steady at what he's done, and it hasn't been great. But I do see like the incremental change in barrel rate last year. Uh, I do see a guy who hits the ball pretty hard. He's had a variable approach, too, where he has a two-strike approach and has a pretty good strikeout rate. I just like him as a hitter. I don't like I, When I watch him, I think he's a good hitter. I don't know about all the other parts of it. So I actually like Mazzaro. I have a couple places where I've kept him at slightly overpriced. Uh, I've drafted him in places. I don't know. I like Mazar. I, like, I wish I had a better reason for liking him. Sometimes you just think a player is going to be good. I think it's going to be a slightly less hitter-friendly environment than the one he's played in in Texas for his career, but he's in a good lineup. There's not a big question about playing time against righties. He's a big side platoon guy. And I think because he hits some of the longest home runs of anybody yeah. in the league, like you you can see that growth potential in the power category. Like I, I think he's been playing through some injuries in recent years, especially. Uh, the floor is pretty clear. He's almost had four consecutive 20 home run seasons to begin his career, which we used to get excited about when a 21-year-old would come up and hit 20 homers and then do it again a few times. That'd be like, oh, wow, this guy's really good. I think everyone expected 30. <laughs> and then because of that, uh, a little bit of the Avi Sale Garcia thing where it's kind of like, oh, we just thought this guy would be better. And I, I think there's still a chance he becomes that better player. Yeah, fatigue, but he's 24. Like, yeah. So it's I'm still guy. I'm still in. I don't I don't think you're you're wrong to um to be interested. Um Hunter Renfro, crowded situation in Tampa Bay. We just talked about the Cincinnati mess a little bit. And I think with Renfro, I I just I, I don't know. I don't know what his actual ceiling is in in, in batting average. Like I, I think he's got plenty of raw power. That's that's been obvious throughout his career. But look at look at the slash lines: two thirty one, two eighty four, four sixty seven, two forty eight, three hundred two, five hundred four, two sixteen, two eighty nine, four eighty nine. Like buying on on Hunter Renfro to become a better hitter is just buying into the Rays process, which generally is smart. 
but I'm struggling to see what they see until it happens. And I don't like that. I want to be able to kind of reverse engineer it at least when they when they go after a player. I want to be able to figure out why they went after that player. And I can't quite figure it out with Hunter Renfro. You know, I wonder if it has something to do with the uh, the splits, the first half, second half splits for him because he had a, a wrist injury diving for a ball after the first half. In the first half, he had a 132 WRC+. Plus. In the second half, he had a 51. He went from hitting uh, 252, 308, 613 to hitting 161, 263, 299 in the second half. Um, so I wonder if they see that first half number and say that's the guy he can be. Uh, when he's healthy. The other thing that I saw that was interesting was that he showed up on, in the second half, he showed up as the um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh uh, best uh, O-swing improver. Like he, Renfro swung it at fewer pitches outside the zone in the second half uh, compared to the first half than, you know, in the top, he was in the top 10 in that change and Margot was there too. So maybe they, they like what they saw in terms of improving plate discipline. Of course, the OPS difference didn't support that Renfro was doing something great, but maybe the injury made him sort of zero in on what he could do more damage with. Um, and so if you kind of take that second half plate discipline and put it together with the first half power masher, maybe you get a kind of a peak season for Renfro. And I think I think the Rays also think, at the very least, we got someone who could murder lefties. Yeah, that, that's the floor for sure. He, he's done that consistently since coming up so he has that carved out but i think they're going to give him some chances against righties as well and, and see what happens the thing that happens though is if he if he struggles they have depth they have so many other ways they can go they can pull him into that smaller role if they choose to so that's where i i think i'm, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about playing time when it comes to hunter renfro i mentioned at the top you can get some batting average late and uh, I don't know if I just like this guy more than most people or what my deal is, but David Peralta coming off uh, an injury plagued season in which he only played 99 games last year was still an above average hitter had a 107 WRC plus hit 275 only hit 12 homers with 423 plate appearances. P- people were skeptical of the 30 home runs that he hit in 2018 and for good reason, but we're talking about a career 290, 346, 478 hitter and one who should play a lot as long as he's healthy I had back-to-back seasons with 140 games in 2017 and 2018 before the injuries last year. Are you in on David Peralta? I wish the barrel rate was better. And, you know, they took the, the juice out of the ball in Arizona with the humidors. Um, so I don't think the 30 homer season is coming back. But I do like his contact skills. He's a bit of a sprayer, athlete. Used to be a pitcher, kind of a fun, fun story. So, do I believe he can hit 280 with 20 homers? Yeah, um, I think he's kind of a Brian Anderson esque player, just older and later. So, uh, someone who won't hurt you anywhere, someone uh, who can put some good stats up, a little bit more valuable than maybe in mono leagues, and um, a good player, but. You know, a lot of times when you come to this point in the draft, either it's because your team is unbalanced or because you're a shallower league, you're more likely to want to take a shot on upside on a lot of potential, like someone who could, you know, start for you. Like, let's say you're taking bench. If you're in the bench pick area and David Peralta is there, 
yeah, you could be like, okay, yeah, I can take this vanilla player. Or I could take someone like, I think, who's who sits like right next to him in terms of ADP-ish is Ian Happ, who murders the ball. I mean, Happ was 23rd in barrel rate. He's right there with Matt Olson. And yeah, he has contact issues, but last year was the best strikeout rate of his career. And, you know, give him a full slate of at-bats and he could steal, you know, 10 to 15 bases. And Albert Almora, you know, is this, is like a very weak hitting competition for him. And uh, so far this spring, Ian Happ is murdering the ball with a 481 average, 815 slugging, whereas Almora is doing well for him, 276, 323, 517. But given the park effects, the uneven competition, and their respective backgrounds and their projections, I figure Ian Happ is going to be the starting center fielder uh, for the for the Cubs this year. He's been creeping up the board a little bit. ADP still fairly cheap in March, two seventy three. Man, yeah, he, I mean, like the plate the plate skills you mentioned are the thing that really jump off the page for me. Uh, it does seem like something clicked for him last season even even at triple a uh, i mean 26.3 percent it's a little high for the level for a guy who's been there before but uh, it was a nice adjustment from what was happening to him in 2018 at the big league level steals a few bases too i mean he was 11 for 13 between triple a and the big leagues last year uh, because of the obp might end up a little higher in the order at some point based on injuries and things going on in that lineup, so I, I'm with you on Ian Happ. I, I think it just makes sense for the Cubs to let him be uh, a regular fixture in their lineup. Maybe against you know a really tough lefty or something, Elmora gets out there for the starts, but it should be Happ at least four days a week, if not five days a week this season. And as a switch hitter, I don't know why most days a week, man. That's that's sort of my bold prediction, I guess, if you want to call it that. I don't know how bold it is even. Uh, I guess Steven Souza Jr. being there um, complicates matters, but I see him as a potential pl- platoon mate for Jason Hayward. Yeah, I, I Hayward and Schwarber both being lefties, I think, kind of steers Souza to the corners. Yeah, and I don't think you really want him to play center. So I would see Amor as a perhaps defensive replacement for Hap late in games. So maybe he fritters off some plate appearances there, but otherwise mostly Hap playing. You know, Kipnis, uh, if you want to build a bench, it's actually a little bit easier in Chicago because I think they have more depth than Cincinnati. If we build a bench, we're going Souza, Almora, Nico Horner, or or Jason Kipnis, whoever doesn't start, David Bodie, uh, Caratini, we're done. Yeah, easy, clean lines when it comes to lining up that depth chart. Like a very good bench. That's, That's, I think, one thing that kind of separates the Cubs from the Reds a little bit. I know the projections have, uh, at least the Pakoda projections have the Reds ahead of them, but I see a plus-plus bench in Chicago. And, you know, yes, the rotation has some questions, but if you is who you was late in the season um, and Chatwood can be, uh, you know, a decent starting pitcher um, and that, that relief core steps up, I don't see why they couldn't do a Milwaukee Brewers-esque thing where they take their starters out early and, and win games, you know, 7-5 seven to, seven to five, uh, based on their bullpen. No, they, they definitely could do something like that. 
Uh, I think they may have to because I, I'm with you. I don't really trust that that core in the rotation at this point. I think that's probably the the biggest weak spot when it comes to Quintana, that roster. I'm doing a piece on on pitch spring training velocities, and Quintana is down. That's never never big, good. Big down. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit, or tuxedo for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code DRAFT. That's theblacktux.com, promo code DRAFT for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. We got some breaking news on air. Uh, Ken Rosenthal is reporting that MLB is suspending operations. Just suspending operations indefinitely. Yeah. I think that's the right move. Um, I think the op- indefinitely is actually kind of hopeful. If they say something like they're shoving ho- opening day back and, you know, moving it to May 1st or something, then that's then there's no flexibility. So, you know, I would expect spring training is done. Uh, none of, no more of this going on. And then, you know, we'll see how things go nationally. Um, I think the over under on starting the season is probably uh, like April 15th or something. Um, I'm, like you said, I wouldn't be surprised if they, they don't play till May, but, um, maybe things slow down. We've seen in some other countries, um, like South Korea, uh, there's been a plateau effect already, uh, in terms of new cases, and maybe if we get to that plateau effect, um, there's some sort of uh, uh, all clear symbol uh, given nationally that uh, allows things to start up again. So um, I would say that uh, we're talking about uh, at least a, a month of uh, filling the airwaves. But I do hope that I do really hope that we can be part of what you're doing to get through this. You know, we're going to have some pretty cool content, I think that you know it'll be more evergreen type off-season type content because we won't know what we're building towards we won't have new information uh but i do think like we can be part of what you're gonna do when you're stuck at home yeah i I, we're still gonna pod we're still gonna write we're gonna do things it'll just be a little bit different for a little while um and as you said i mean we kind of thought something like this we talked about at the beginning of the show was was coming today tomorrow soon um so to officially have that news uh, I think that's that's the right step. It's it's just necessary at this point, and hopefully, it's the the first step towards uh, things eventually getting better as quickly as they possibly can. Um, we can talk a little more baseball, right? We got a little more time. Okay, let's get to a few more players. I was thinking about a few prospects in this range. 
Uh, Joe Adele, whose playing time outlook changed a lot when Jock Peterson, for a moment, looked like he was coming to the Angels. And, of course, yeah. that trade hasn't happened and probably will not come back at any point. Does give us a signal, maybe, of like how they feel about him playing a lot this year. Yeah, to me, I've been a little bit hesitant to target him since that trade went down because yeah. it just made me think that the Angels want to give him most of this year at AAA. He finally struggled at a level last year when he got there. The power went away, 355 slugging percentage, 32.6% K rate. We're still talking about an extremely talented player with a very bright future. With the trade not happening, maybe we do see him sooner because it's basically Adele versus Brian Goodwin for the third spot in the outfield next to Upton and Mike Trout. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's like news that was happening coming out of angels camp is that, uh, David Fletcher is playing some center field and I don't think that means a ton in terms of him playing center field. I think it means something in terms of him playing outfield. So if Fletcher can play the outfield, Listella can be more of a full-time second baseman, and um, Fletcher can be the backup. You know, Ren Kifo can be the backup uh, infielder, and Fletcher can be the backup outfielder slash backup infielder. So I think uh, Fletcher will find his way to 400 plate appearances with this with this thing set up the way it is. I think Goodwin is an okay player that can play for a while. And I think maybe the first injury will be the impetus for them to call up Joe Adele. Um, I have one share of Joe Adele and I paired him with Malik Smith in my great fantasy baseball invitational where uh, I illustrated two concepts at once, which is the, the concept of compounding error <laughs> where I made a bad choice in picking Malik Smith, who I think will lose his job this year. And then I made it even worse, possibly, uh, by picking a guy who I don't know if will play this year. But in my mind, I also think I feel like I mitigated the Malik Smith problem with Joe Adele because I'm hoping to sort of Frankenstein two halves of a season together and get maybe a half season with two homers and 20 stolen bases out of Malik Smith and then another half season with 10 stolen bases and 15 homers from Joe Adele, smash it together and get a decent player out of it. So if you can get Adele late enough where like, you get him into your util slot and then you're, so my backups in that league um, are going to play. And so I had to pick... Oh, all right. I wish I had that off the top of my head. Um, I picked... Oh, AJ Pollock uh, was a guy. And I forget who the other guy was. But I, take, I, put, I picked some like boring veterans, like so, some Brian Anderson-type players, in order to uh, take Joe Adele's place in the lineup until... Joe Adele comes up. So it does put me one player behind in terms of having to fill a starting slot with someone that I'm picking in the bench rounds. But I think it's possible that Joe Adele's ceiling is so grand and so exciting that you do want to do that. I do think he's on the short list prospects. And we've talked about it with injured players on our shows. You can stash like one injured player and maybe one prospect if you don't have IL spots and you don't have very deep benches. He's good enough to hold on to for a few weeks, and you just have to draft him knowing that 
if the right combination of things happens to your roster, you may have to cut him loose before he debuts. That's in the range yeah. of, of possibilities, uh, but I think the payoff could absolutely be worth it because the talent is, you know, just there. Like it's, similar to on the pitching side, I would say like Paxton and Clevenger, uh, Verlander. Uh, his injury strikes me as maybe the most worrisome of the three. Yes, uh, I would agree with that. I, I just I I think because of the nature of it, I it's think he's had something similar before too. It's a throwing injury. It's like a it's an arm injury. It's not an arm injury, but it's an arm injury. And Clevenger's is a knee, and Paxton is a back. Paxton was already throwing. Clevenger's already throwing. So uh, I like the fact that they're already throwing is a big deal, whereas Verlander's in the non-throwing phase. So, um, yeah, those I think you could have one of those guys and a Joe Adele, and that's about the max you can have. Yeah, otherwise, you're not going to have enough flexibility on your bench, more injuries are going to happen, and you're going to have even more tough cuts to make uh, later on. The other prospect kind of in this range, inside the top 300, between 200 and 300, is Dylan Carlson. He's having a big spring. I don't think it matters in the sense that I don't think it really pushes up his timetable to be a guy who's on the roster from day one, whenever day one is going to be. But I do think he's up within the first couple of weeks of the season. I've believed that all along. It's a big part of why I threw a few bucks on him in the auction for NL labor a couple weeks ago. I think he's played his way on the team. You think he's just on outright and they're just going to say, we don't care. We'll, we'll sign him to a extension later. I think they'd rather have Edmund in the infield, you know, and there's enough question marks with Tyler O'Neill Harrison Bader and Dexter Fowler. I mean, it's not like we have question marks with one of our outfielders. It's there are huge question marks over every single one of our outfielders. Age, bat, contact. Yeah. You know, age with Fowler, Bader just sort of overall bat, although I like his barrel rate, and, I, and he's a guy that I'll take late too. Tyler O'Neill, can he make enough contact to make use of his prodigious tools? I think you throw Carlson in that mix and you feel better about the whole thing. And I think Carlson's ahead of Joe Adele all of a sudden for me, just in terms of what I've seen, in terms of his at-bats. I, I really like Carlson, but one thing I did do was leave Carlson and Adele on the board, and as soon as Carlson was took, was taken, I took Joe Adele. Yeah, I think they, they should be closer in price than the ADPs uh, suggest. What is the ADP situation? Though? 274 for Carlson in oh. March, and 235 for Adele. I mean, they were talking 40 oh, picks. It's weird. So. In, my, in my league, uh, Carlson went first and I took Adele next, but you uh, you could push it the other way, but you know, just have them both on the board and hope that uh, both don't go right before you. So, One other name I want to talk about who I was kind of staying away from for the first part of draft season. Now I'm a little more interested because he's been playing and, and playing well, and I think it matters in this case because of the nature of his injury. Gregory Polanco. He's played mm. eight games this spring. He's walked as much as he struck out. He's got a home run. He's got a few other extra base hits. It, I've liked him a lot as a player, and I just feel like the injury popped up on him right as he was putting all of the pieces together back in 2018. Uh, last year was almost an entirely lost season, only 42 games played a year ago. Uh, what do you think about Gregory Polanco, given that he's outside the top 250 overall right now, price-wise? Yeah, I, I like him. Um, I have Polanco and Trent Grisham as somewhat similar players that I have uh, plenty of of uh, shares of. Actually, I think that they're both guys who can hit 250 uh, to 260, 20 homers and 10 stolen bases um, with decent OBPs. 
they're not uh, flawed to the point where their defense or their offense or you know their, their OBP or something is going to keep them out of the lineup. Um, they're on teams that need them to play. Um, I might have Grisham just a notch ahead of uh, Polanco because of just health and youth. Uh, but Polanco has a little bit more of a track record on the side. So uh, there's an, another sort of Adele Carlson situation where if you like them, you can probably leave them both on the board. Uh, but if you wait too long, you're going to be, you're going to end up with Polanco instead of uh, Grisham, I think. And I think we've maybe mentioned this during the positional preview series. You get to a certain point in drafts where we're absolutely talking about players at, at that point. If there's someone you really like, just take them. Like yeah. the, the ADP gets thrown out the window the further into the draft you go. And it's, and I've ended up with Grisham, uh, over Polanco a couple times just because I've decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Grisham is 23, and I think he's going to start every day. Um, he doesn't have the specter of a shoulder injury uh, sitting over him. And uh, I like his Zips projection, 240, 20 homers, 10 stone bases. So I also worry that Polanco is not going to steal many bases. It's just stolen bases age terribly, and he's got the shoulder injury. I don't think he wants to be sliding into a lot of bases. Yeah, I think anything you get in that category is probably a bonus, but yeah. I like the way the plate skills were developing before the injury. So if he's a 8 to 10% walk rate guy, 20% K rate guy, I think 25 home runs are, are still in play for him. Just yeah. It's nice to see him healthy uh, as it pertains to that shoulder injury over the course of the spring. There's plenty of other late names that I like. I don't think we have a lot of time to dive into why I like them. So I'll throw a few names out, and then you can throw a few out there as well. And let me know if you think any of these are just terrible calls. But here's where I'm at. Uh, I think Kyle Lewis, who's basically free, is pretty interesting, along with Jake Fraley. Yeah, like Lewis is big power, and injuries, I think, have really taken away some of the luster that he had as a prospect. He was an early first-round pick a few years ago. Healthy now, and I saw him homer the other day. It was a opposite field bomb he just crushed the ball i just think there's a lot of power potential there and he's basically an end game free sort of player but even jake fraley who's also had injuries coming up former Rays prospect now in seattle i think both of those guys are going to play a lot as they try and piece things together to begin the season uh, ender and Ciarte, i've mentioned him before i'll mention him again if you're looking for cheap average cheap speed i think it's important for the braves to give him a lot of playing time uh, in part because uh, I just think the defense with Marcelo Zuna in one of the corners is a bit more of a priority at the other two spots. And Mark Kick is as old as dirt, dude. Make him DH, and maybe Freeman is going to be hurt to start the season. I mean, he's, had some, he's been kind of ginger this spring. Um, I don't know if that means Yonder Alonso plays or if maybe Mark Kick plays him first or something, but you know, there's, there's, uh, there's some injury possibility there. I think NCRJ will play some. Yeah, so those are a couple guys that I'm on. A.J. Pollock, you mentioned him earlier. I'm all in on, on Pollock just being the old, boring type that you can draft at his price and end up being pretty happy with what you get on a per-game basis. A little, bit, a little bit more interested in daily leagues, I think, where I can shuttle him in and out. Yeah, definitely pushes up the interest there, so you got to watch the schedule a bit more carefully in weekly leagues. Uh, as far as late outfielders for you, who else is catching your eye? Uh, I tend to sometimes... Um, gravitate towards uh, okay players that I wouldn't like otherwise but are on really bad teams. So uh, Jacoby Jones and Kristen Stewart have their obvious flaws, but I could see them playing a fair amount. 
Uh, Jacoby Jones can give you some stolen bases too, whereas Kristen Stewart would be a low batting average slugger type. Um, I think Adam Hazley is going to start in in Philadelphia as the starting center fielder. Um, and I think he could be sort of an 18-10 type guy uh, with a decent batting average. Um, I'm not calling the Phillies bad. That was a There was a segue there I meant to make. Um, <laughs> uh, and then Sam Hilliard uh, is like my favorite late sleeper just because, um, you know, Colorado, uh, he hits the ball really hard. Um, he kind of strikes me a little bit like a uh, like an Ian Happ type, so it may not happen right away. Uh, but in terms of bail rate and exit velocity, it's all there. Um, and I don't know. I think um, I think there's a chance he plays. And if he plays and gets some of that glorious, glorious Colorado BABIP, uh, I think he could hit 250 with 20 homers and 15 stolen bases. Maybe even go 2020. Um, and that's that's something fun to 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 kind of pick on your bench. So uh, right now he has to beat out um, Tapia basically and Desmond, which d- doesn't seem that hard. No, I'm I'm right there with the Hilliard. I mean, there's tools on tools, and the park can mask a lot of his flaws. The park masks a lot of flaws for players in Colorado. You can have more swing and miss and get away with it because the balls you do put in play uh, become hits more often. Like that's. That's the beauty of the ballpark, or or the worst thing about it, of course, if you're if you're a pitcher. Uh, as always, you can reach us via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Be sure to spell out the word and if you go that route. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates in Barrels. Stay safe out there. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening and subscribing and stay healthy. <laughs>